Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how the Lord answered Abraham that Eleazar would not be his future heir, but that by faith Abraham would have another heir of God's choice. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. Now we have some exciting news. Tom Cantor has finished his long-awaited Friendship with God Bible. It's a King James Bible with over 2,200 pages and has over 600 pages of Bible helps and resources. It has Hebrew root notations in the Old Testament, over 30,000 Bible column and inline scripture references. It also includes daily bread reading notations, a tour of the Bible scripture journey, 12 custom-made full-color maps, a full-color nine-page history of Israel timeline map, not to mention an incredible concordance, a most popular Bible scripture reference section, a Bible reference help section, and a prophecy and fulfillment reference section, as well as the names of the Messiah section, and hundreds and hundreds of other personalized pages from Tom Cantor. Too many to name to help you study your Bible and grow your friendship with God. We're printing a limited supply of these with Finland thin paper printing technology and covered in lambskin leather. A reference commentary Bible would cost you over $200 like this, But we're offering the Tom Cantor Friendship with God Commentary and Reference Bible at less than $80 if you call and sign up today before the first limited print run release. Please call us at 1-800-247-3051. We'll add you to our list. 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Call us now or after the program. 1-800-247-3051. 3051 for the Tom Cantor Friendship with God Bible. Now here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching from the book of Genesis. All right. So if you all like to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, we'll get ready to start here this morning and we'll get right underway here with by asking God to help us. Lord, we come to you this morning, each one of us, and our prayer is the same, and that is help us, Lord, as we study this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis 15, 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to tell them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. All right. In our last study, we saw Abraham's deep distress. He was very troubled, Abraham was, very Abraham, very troubled, very distressed. And Abraham has heard God speak about an exceeding great reward that brought to Abraham's mind that he doesn't have an inheritor. He doesn't have some, an heir for this inheritance. So the thought of inheritance has brought to Abraham's mind this painful reminder that he's childless. And so he says in verse 3, Lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And this was very painful for him. And it's so painful that he repeats this in verses 2 and 3 
And he's doing what David had done in Psalm 142 when David says, Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. So this is what we're seeing Abraham do here, verses 2 and 3. He's crying to the Lord with his voice. And he's pouring out, like uh, David says here. You can just picture Abraham. He's just, he's complaining. It's not complaining in the sense that the Israelites did. That was not a good complaining. This was a good complaining. <laughs> but he's pouring out. What makes the good complaint? He's pouring out his complaint to God. It's very painful. And he says these things to God. What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. So when we're left... Verse 3, we saw Abraham pointing to Eliezer, the servant in his house, the faithful steward in his house, and saying to God, is this who you have in mind? Is this the person who's going to be my heir? And so then we see that the Lord answers Abraham about Eliezer, and he says in verse 4, this shall not be thine heir. No, you got it wrong, Abraham. I said what I meant, and Eliezer is not who I meant. He's not going to be your heir. But then he said, he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now, by the way, you notice in this dialogue here, it's very interesting because Abraham and God are speaking back and forth. And in verse 2, it says, and Abram said. In verse 3, and it says, and Abram said. And verse 4 does not say, and God said. In verse 4 says, and behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying. So Abram speaks to God, and the word of the Lord comes to Abram with a behold. So Abraham spoke to God, and behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And when the Lord came to Abram, we don't know how that word of the Lord came to Abram. Did Abram hear with his ears the voice of God? Did he hear with his ears the word of the Lord that came to him? We don't know. What we do know is that Abram had this deep conviction in his heart that God had spoken to him. And how that word of the Lord came to Abram, we don't know. We don't know that. But whether it was from a voice or whether it was from a deep conviction that Abram had, he knew that the word of the Lord had come to him. And so these words in verse 4 are very significant for us where it says, the word of the Lord came unto him. That describes our conversation with God. I mean, when we're troubled, when we're distressed, so what do we do? We talk to God, and we talk to God with our voice, as David did. We do this alone, so people don't think we're crazy, but we do this. <laughs> he says this, Abraham says in Psalm 77, 1, he said, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. So as we talk to God with our voice, verbally, we're like Abraham in verses 2 and 3. And Abram said, and Tom said, and Irene said, right, Irene, Ken said, so forth. Because we speak to God with our voice. That's what we do. And then we do what David says in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. And when that verse says, I waited patiently in Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. The word patiently is what the translators have chosen for a word, but really it's the same Hebrew word. So in other words, what it's really saying here is saying, I waited patiently. And no, it doesn't say patiently. What am I saying? That's what the translators say. Waited is used twice, is used twice there. So literally it reads, I waited and waited. Or in waiting, I waited. Or I waited 
And then I waited, you know. And after I waited, I waited some more. That's the whole idea there. And so this is to say that after we speak to God, sometimes we have to wait. And after we wait, in some ways we have to wait some more, more time. Why does God make us wait? Because he wants to see us go into a transition. He's training our hearts so that we're not just so casual about it with God. We don't just, you know, I want to hear God's answer. No, he wants us to get on from the, I want to hear God's answer to, I need to hear God's answer. And then he wants us to get to, I must have God's answer. And then he says, then God says, all right, now, now I'll give you the answer. And until we get to the, I must hear, I must have God's answer, God makes us wait. And so then one day we're reading our Bible and and then a verse from this verse that we read all of a sudden, we got our answer. Boy, we got it right there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to us. And, you know, it's more like if we were writing it, we'd say, will you look at that? That's God just gave me the answer. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So Abraham understood that Eliezer was not going to be his heir. But Abraham's heir was going to be, as God described him, he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now the Hebrew word used here for bowels is me'eh. It means soft part. And so there are other places in scripture where that word is used. For example, we're going to see it when God tells Rebekah, that inside her womb, he says in Genesis 25, 23, two manner of people shall be separated from thy me'ah, so the, from thy bowels, and one shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And we'll see it, we wouldn't see it, but anyways, it's in Ruth 1, 11, where Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is addressing Ruth, and she says, you know, turn away, go back, you know, back to your land of Moab, don't come with me. And one of the things she says in Ruth 1, 11 is, and Naomi said, turn again, my daughter, actually, she was speaking to both of them, my daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my me'eh, in my womb? that they may be your husband. So the word may uh, used to refer to the soft part of the body, but it's the womb. And so when we read this, that, you know, it's, God says to Abraham, again, someone is, that he that shall come forth of thy own bowels, thy own womb. So, you know, we being very intelligent come to the conclusion that Abraham doesn't have a womb. <laughs> That's a newsflash. <laughs> and so no child is going to come out of Abraham's body or his soft part or his womb. And so when it comes to shall come forth of thine own bowels, that cannot be talking about Abraham literally because Abraham's got some missing parts. <laughs> and so it just ain't going to happen. But what was God talking about? Well, obviously, this is referring to the other part of Abraham's flesh. You know, that, that, her name is Sarah. And so here we see God is really addressing Abraham and Sarah as one flesh. As he said in Genesis 2, 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So he's addressing Abraham and Sarah together as one flesh. Now in verse 5 we read that it says here in verse 5 in Genesis 15, 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. 
Now, God continues here to talk about Abraham's seed because the subject has come up, exceeding great reward. That means inheritance. Abraham immediately feels the pain and distress. What inheritance? Who's my heir? Brings back the whole pain that he's childless. And so we go on now when we're talking about the seed. He says, no, it's going to be someone come out of your bowels, meaning you and Sarah together, which is going to be very important for Abraham to remember, poor Abraham, when the, the matter of the Egyptian Hagar comes to be discussed. And so he goes on further to elaborate on Abraham's seed, and God says, okay, I need Abraham to go outside. So he brings him outside, and he brings him outside, and he tells Abraham, look. Now, where does God tell Abraham to look? What does it say? Where does it tell him to look? He says, look up, look up, look up to the sky, look up to heaven, right. He tells him to do that. He says, look now toward heaven. So Abraham, look up, look up. So he's looking up. And in other words, he's telling Abraham, look vertically, look up. Now, what did God tell him to look at when he looked up? Of stars. He says, Abraham, see those stars up there? I want you to you know, focus on the stars. Look at the stars, Abraham. So two things. Look up, look at the stars. Okay? Then with Abraham looking toward heaven, seeing the stars, God tells Abraham that his seed is going to be like the stars. It's like the numbers of the stars. But now, what God is telling Abraham here is very similar in structure to what God has told Abraham that we've already looked at in Genesis 13. And turn back to that, Genesis 13, 14. Keep your place in Genesis 15, 5 after you've already left it. <laughs> Keep your place in Genesis 15, 5 because we're going to look at the parallel between Genesis 15, 5 and Genesis 13, 14, which we've already looked at. Now, Notice this, Genesis 13, 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art. Sound familiar? Where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. So, here we are, Genesis 13, 14. Where does God tell Abraham to look this time? Horizontally. That's right. He says, look north, look south, look east, look west. Look across toward the north, toward the south, toward the east, toward the west. Look horizontally. So he says, look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. So God tells Abraham to look across the land. Not look up this time, but look across the land. So what we have here in, the, in Genesis 13, 16, what did God tell him to look at when he looked across? Stars? It's in the verse. <laughs> Dust. <laughs> Dust. I don't know why I have these hard questions. All right, anyway. So it's a, he tells him, look at the dust. Right? Look across the land. Look up. <laughs> see the stars. See the dust. So he says that, he says, now look, so now we have this parallel set up between Genesis 13 and Genesis 15. See, Genesis 13, 14, he says, lift up thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward, westward. Genesis 15, 5, he says, look now toward heaven. And he says, and tell the stars. See, Genesis 13, 16, he says, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. And Genesis 15, 5, tell the stars, so shall thy seed be. See, thy seed shall be as the dust. Thy seed shall be as the stars. See, look across, look up. Look horizontal, look vertical. Look horizontal, see the dust. Your seed's going to be like the dust. Look vertical, see the stars. Your seed is going to be like the stars. 
Tom, today you mentioned that the dust of the seed of Abraham wouldn't be able to be numbered. Now, Abraham and Sarah had some conflicts leading up to the birth of Isaac. In fact, the Bible records that even the first marital conflict was between Adam and Eve in the garden. So with many marriages in the Bible and many marriages today going through difficult moments of faith in God and trust in one another, what is the key to marital harmony in our lives of faith? Well, yes, this is perhaps the greatest crisis in the in the Christian church today is the crisis of marriage with divorce so common and yet it's it, it's an absolute tragedy and so it's very good for us to look at what we're seeing here before us with Adam and Eve and to ask this basic question how do you get along how do you keep a marriage from going on the rocks what's the key to marital harmony well we can think of several things, but maybe the one of the f- first ones that comes to our mind is, first of all, before getting married, make sure that you're equally yoked, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with the unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? You know, before getting married, recognize that marriage is an opportunity to have fellowship with another person. It's an opportunity to have communion with another person. And so what we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ want to have fellowship with is righteousness to unrighteousness. A believer is a person who has the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A person who is not a believer does not have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he has unrighteousness. And Paul said, in essence, he would say to two people who are contemplating getting married, one a believer and not one a non-believer, he would say, look beyond the honeymoon. And when you're sitting down together and you're just the two of you and you want to have fellowship, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? There is no fellowship there. And then he says communion. A person who is is in the Lord Jesus Christ is, as he said, the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. And so you have light within you because the Lord Jesus Christ is inside of you and he is light. But a person who is not in the Lord Jesus Christ is in darkness. Paul said, you were darkness. And so Paul is saying here again, look, for those times when you are married, when you've been married, a long time and you're going to sit down in your rocking chairs on your porch or in the couch within your home all alone, or you're going to sit down together at a meal table and you're just together, that's an opportunity for two spirits to commune with each other. But if one spirit is light and the other spirit is darkness, Paul is saying, think What communion hath light with darkness? So the first thing to have marital harmony is to make sure that both of you Both of you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are both believers, that as the both of you draw close to your common hub, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will experience the drawing together closer of yourselves to each other as you grow individually closer to your common love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing, is to is is just very simple in in marriage 
to love each other, just simply love each other. Now, that doesn't mean the, 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 the passionate, physical affection. It goes beyond that because it says in 1 Peter 4, 8, defines for us what love says. It says, and above all, have fervent or hot love charity among yourselves. And again, he's not speaking about physical affection because he says for charity or love, Love shall cover the multitude of sin. So the temperature of your love is measured by how much you cover the sin in the other person. To cover the sin in the other person is to not keep bringing up the sin of the other person. It's to overlook. It's to ignore. It's to it's to it's to cover the sin of the other person. That's love in action. And so he's saying, have love, hot love toward each other. Hot love toward each other is to cover the sin in the other person. To when you look at the other person, see as God sees, see the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that that person has been clothed in. That's what it means to cover the multitude of sins, which God does. God commands us husbands especially, he says in Ephesians 5.25, he knows we have a problem. So he says, husbands, love your wives. Unless we should say, what does that mean? Does that mean to, to rush into the heat of passion? No. Paul says, love your wives even, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Sacrifice your interests. Sacrifice your time. Sacrifice talking what may not seem to be interesting to you to talk about. That's giving yourself as Christ also gave himself for the church. It says in Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Don't hold a grudge. Don't think of what she did to you and therefore you'll never forgive her. That's being bitter against her. Give it up. Throw that bitterness into the sea, as the Jewish people sometimes would do before Yom Kippur, as they would take and write things and, and then cast those into a river or a sea. In other words, do that, in, in, in essence. Cast your bitterness into the sea and instead love your wives. Don't be bitter against them. It says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So we have an opportunity within our marriages, both husband and wives, to show that we are born of God and that we know God because as we exercise love to our spouse. And 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So in a sense, of course, we have a special relationship, spouse to spouse in a marriage. But also, if believers, that's part of the believing body of Christ. And so, therefore, he says, let's love one another because that's what God has done for us. It's very important to realize that in marriage, God has joined together. That's what it says and also in Malachi 2.15. Did not he make one? God made one. And he says in there that we should take heed to our spirit to not deal treacherously. And he gives a title to the wife when he says, don't deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Remember the days when you were young together. I've been married for 43 years. can still remember when we were young. 
And it's always good to remember how you loved your wife when you were young. She's the wife of your youth and treat her that way. And then, you know, there's going to be things that happen as we've all experienced in the church, among other Christians, and with our spouses, that we just simply have to forbear. We have to forgive. And that's why it says in Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against other, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. This is the way we prove that we know that Christ has forgiven us for our sins when we forgive others. It says in Ephesians 4.2, with all loneliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another. God knows that it will take patience. He says, forbear. That's why he says in Romans 12, 18, and if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. All of these verses applicable to the church are applicable to our marriages, and that's where the rubber meets the road, and we need to love our spouses. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Now, our resource for this month is from Tom Cantor called How Would You Learn the Meaning of Isaiah 53? And it's a uniquely written presentation of the gospel. We'll also include Tom Cantor's personal testimony of how a Jew came to know and put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll receive both of these for a $10 or more donation to the Friendship with God radio program, and you'll receive a matching donation from Israel Restoration Ministries towards Jewish evangelism outreach. We've reached the past three years well over 5 million lost Jewish people with the gospel in America, as well as Canada, South America, and Israel, and around the world. So to order your copies of How a Jew Learned the Meaning of Isaiah 53 and How a Jew Came to Know and Put His Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of Tom Cantor, call us today with your donation of $10 or more at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. That's one 800 247-3051. You can also go to our website to donate online at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org, or check out our online bookstore of Tom Cantor's materials. Again, friendshipwithgod.org, or call us 1-800-247-3051.